But we'll be spending our time this morning in the final paragraph of James chapter 4, which is verses 13 through 17. And this will finish up the whole chapter as we go into chapter 5, the last chapter of the series. We've been looking at what James says about living up to your faith. James is writing to scattered Jewish believers, many of whom had been members of James's flock in Jerusalem. Uh, they're Jewish believers, but of course they've been scattered, most of them because of severe persecution. And now James is writing to those 12 tribes, those Jewish believers who are scattered abroad, to tell them how to live up to their faith in their Messiah, Jesus. Many of them had grown up trying to keep the letter of the law. But law keepers can miss the whole point of the law. They can keep specific rules that are designed to express love to one's neighbor and still not love their neighbor. And they can follow commands designed to demonstrate mercy and kindness and yet still not be merciful and kind. In fact, this is one of Jesus' main messages to the Pharisees in the Gospels who are keeping the letter of the law. He told them sometimes, you need to go out and find out what real mercy looks like. So James is saying to them, here's what a true Christian looks like. Here's what Christian living looks like. And it's divorced from legal code. And much of what we have read and learned from James over this year has had to do with how we treat people in general and people, how we treat them in the body of Christ. James teaches, for example, that we should love one another sincerely and we should live with one another peacefully and that, uh, as we saw last week, we should consider one another uh, unjudgmentally, he says in the paragraph right before the one we're dealing with today. But there are other lessons in the letter of James that have primarily to do with our relationship with God. How to respond to God in trials, chapter 1. How to pray, how to face temptation, how to, how to acknowledge God's gifts gratefully. We've seen all these things in James. And here at the end of James 4, we find another message like this, a message that admonishes us how to walk and to please God himself. And I hope this morning that it stretches and challenges your understanding of how we are to live in light of God's will for our lives. And as Rob has already prayed, let's be yielded to God. Let's, let's ask him uh, to teach us, what do you want me to do? How do you want me to change, Lord, because of this text this morning? Let's begin reading. Chapter 4, verses 13 through 17. James says, Come now, you who say, Today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend a year there and trade and make a profit. Yet, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. And here's the central idea of the text, verse 15. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. As it is, you boast in your arrogance, literally your arrogances. All such boasting is evil. So whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him, it is sin. 
You know, as clear as day, I still remember coming to Bob Jones University as a freshman, having the next four years completely mapped out of my life. I know you're laughing already because that is almost ludicrous to think about. But seriously, I had a piece of lined notebook paper, I still remember, that was divided into four sections. And in each of those sections, I had listed all the classes that I would be taking over the next four years. And I would graduate in four years. I would marry the girl I was dating at the time. I would be a youth pastor for a few years, and then I would become a real pastor. And uh, that was basically my life plan. And it was all written out. I could tell you everything that was going to happen. Problem is, hardly any of that stuff happened. And the things that did happen happened in a way I never expected. I didn't graduate in four years. It was five I didn't become a youth pastor. I went to graduate school in speech performance, like acting and debate. People are kind of nervous about a pastor who's an actor, too, but uh, that was kind of a long time ago. (laughs) Halfway through grad school, I married a girl I had not even known when I was a freshman, but she and I had our plans laid out. We were going to go to Northland Baptist Bible College. She was going to teach English. I was going to teach speech. About a month before we were supposed to move to Wisconsin, one year and three days after we were married, we were in an auto accident, and the Lord took her home to be with him. I never saw that coming. And I still remember the first words out of my mouth when the doctor came in and told me, there's nothing more we can do. I was stunned. And I said, wow, this changes everything. And I dare say there are many of you here who have had a life experience where you stepped back and said, wow, this changes everything. Well, I still ended up teaching at Northland uh, in the area of speech, but there was another faculty member at Northland who also taught speech, a young, beautiful, intelligent speech teacher named Rena. And one thing led to another, and Rena and I were married. And it was around that time that I started to question whether I should be making my career a speech teacher or whether uh, I should go into the ministry. My heart had been drawn to full-time ministry for a while, and I began to pray about whether the Lord might open a door for me to work in a church under a pastor that I uh, could respect, who would mentor me, and hopefully close enough to a seminary where I could go there and get some training. And soon after that, the head of the Bible department at Northland, whom everybody thought was the greatest expositor in the world, called me into his office and he said these very words, can I throw a monkey wrench into your life? He said, I'm leaving Northland to pastor a large church in Minneapolis. I'd like you to come with me and work alongside with me and train for the ministry. And Central, Central Seminary was housed inside Fourth Baptist Church at that time. So he said, now, if you said yes to this, you'd have to go to seminary, but we would pay for it. I don't know if you've ever had this opportunity, uh, the the, the experience where somebody offers you something, and and, and so you say the Christian thing, well, I'll really pray about this, you know. (laughs) But inside, you're like, yes, (laughs) you know. It was such an answer to prayer above and beyond anything that we had ever thought would happen. And that was what the Lord did to catapult me into a long pathway with many twists and unexpected turns through ministerial, tra- ministerial training at three different seminaries, into youth ministry, the pastorate, and finally teaching in a seminary. And when we came down to teach in, in the seminary at BJU, uh, looking for a church in Greenville, 
uh, I eventually found Gateway, a tiny group of people meeting in some rooms in a church building just around the corner from us right now, ironically. The first Sunday we found Gateway, we didn't even go into the building. The door was shut, and it looked very sketch, as my kids would say. So we left. But the next week, I was out of town, and Rena came back with the kids, determined to get in. And that's really how we found Gateway. The rest of the story is too complicated to relate here, but I'll, I still tell people that I accidentally became the pastor of Gateway Baptist Church because I was not looking to pastor a church. In fact, were it not for my wife's persistence in returning that Sunday, we might not even be members of Gateway Baptist Church. My ministry here is something I did not know that the Lord would have in store. Now, I know that the majority of you completely relate to this broken tale of unexpected things. And if you do not relate, you just haven't lived long enough yet. You will relate because things are going to happen in your life that you will never see coming. There will be monkey wrenches that the Lord throws into the works, paths that you find yourself taking you never knew were even paths. Some of these surprises will come severely with great pressure. Some of them will come with great joy. And every time this happens to you, you will be reminded that you are not ultimately in control. You think you know what you're going to do. The Bible even tells us to plan wisely for the future, and it gives us wonderful exhortations about how to take paths paths forward in our life and following the Lord. But overarching all of your planning and all of your vision of the future, even the steps you map out to serve the Lord and follow his will, there is this inescapable reality that a good and righteous and loving and wise sovereign God has a plan for you and he will not be consulting you before he brings you unexpected turns in your journey. So James says, You ought to say, if the Lord wills, we will live and do this or that. He's saying to us in this text that in any plans we make, we must consciously reckon the sovereign will of God that reigns supreme over our lives. In the year 1665 and 1666, Europe was devastated by the Great Plague. And there was this brilliant young mathematician still in his 20s by the name of Isaac Newton who was forced to suspend his studies at Cambridge and return home. It was sort of like the 17th century COVID, only much worse if you can imagine that, and I'm sure you can. It was there in an orchard on the estate of his childhood home that Newton saw an apple drop from a tree. The myth is it hit him on the head. It didn't really. He, he, he later related the fact that he saw it drop from the tree and he wondered as he contemplated that why falling objects always fall straight down, never sideways, never varying. And in his curiosity to answer this question, he realized why all of the mathematical formulas could not explain various phenomenon in the world well. The old math, going back to the ancient Greeks, could only account for what was static, frozen in time and space. But that math was missing a key factor that changed everything. The factor of motion and dynamic change. 
And when Newton developed the math for that missing factor, which we now call calculus, and he wasn't the only one who helped develop it, but he was a main player, he upgraded our ability in the mathematical world to apply mathematics to every single situation, the ability to accurately measure and calculate continuous change brought us remarkable breakthroughs, such as the artificial heart or the ability to put a man on the moon. With this missing factor now reckoned into equations, we are able to realize fascinating accomplishments in engineering and economics and medicine and meteorology and even music. In fact, Richard Feynman said that calculus was the language God used when creating the universe. In a similar way, we are able to make sense out of our lives only when we reckon the factor of the will of our sovereign God who may change things in our lives. We won't be able to know what is going on in our life or at least begin to understand it until we enter into the equation of our lives if the Lord wills. This is the only way we can account for account for and, and measure and respond correctly to the continual and sometimes unpredictable changes that will come. In fact, you will struggle spiritually and you will even fight bitterness and anger and even depression if you do not reckon this factor of God's sovereign will into your life. In this text, James calls us out for making plans without recognizing that God may have a different plan for us than we made for ourselves. And James offers three compelling reasons that we should always consciously say, if the Lord wills. And I want to consider these compelling reasons together in an effort to better understand why it is so important for us to reckon God's sovereign will consciously. So here we go. Compelling reason number one. Our knowledge of the future is zero. Zero. Nada. It does not exist. We think we know what the future holds, at least for a little way down the road. We've made our plans, and we have certain things in place, and we've interacted with people. And we, have, we have sort of a confidence that the way things have gone will be the, thing, uh, the way things will continue to go. But we really have no idea. Things could change in a moment news from a doctor, an unexpected storm, layoffs at work, something going on behind your back that suddenly comes to light, an accident, something really positive can also happen unexpectedly, an incredible opportunity that falls into your lap or a sudden financial gain. But you know what I mean. You can get out of bed one morning and everything is the same that you expected, but by the time you go to bed that night, everything is different. Everything has changed and you're lying awake trying to grapple with it. That's why James is saying in this text that we need to bow to the sovereign will of God. Look what he says here at the beginning. He says, come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go into such and such a town and spend there a year and trade and make a profit, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. Now I want to pause there. James begins, come now. This is, this is sort of a stock expression that carries a lot of emotion in the ancient world. It's, it's intended to get the hearers to sit up and to take notice and to think about how they're processing life. 
It's rare in the New Testament. In fact, James is the only author who uses it. He uses it here. He uses it at the beginning of chapter 5. And these are the, uh, th- this, is, this is in the context of a whole bunch of other Greek literature where you will find this particular phrase. So he's borrowing this and suddenly shifting. If you're looking at reading through the letter, he's suddenly shifting and jumping into this topic, grabbing our attention. If you are the kind of person who says the following, today or tomorrow, we will go into such and such a town and spend there a year and trade and make a profit. I want you to notice the repetition of the word and. These people are making plans. They're going to do this and that, then the other thing. And we could certainly apply this passage to any plans that we might make. I don't think there's anything that James is saying that's wrong here necessarily. I mean, it's not wrong to say, okay, we're going to go here, we're going to buy, and we're going to sell, we're going to make a living. But he's pulling an example from the world of commerce and trade. These are merchants who are making plans for how they would conduct their business and make money. In fact, this is a very common scenario in the first century. In the page of the New Testament, we meet Lydia, a seller of purple, and Aquila and Priscilla who make tents. We find out the Apostle Paul makes tents as well. Everyone had a professional skill that they could fall back on or make a living with. So these are just business plans made by those who had some means of travel and some resources and some skills to apply to their trade and turn a profit. But they are business plans that are made without taking into account the most important factor that God may have other plans. I also want to point out that James could have used any example of people making plans, and yet he chooses to take an example of people whose ultimate aim is to turn a profit, to make money. And even though there's nothing wrong with this business model, I wonder if James isn't using this example because we are particularly susceptible to making plans without taking God into account when we are pursuing this earthly goal, like riches or trying to even just to provide for our family or getting ahead in some way. We get our mind on earthly things. When our ultimate aim, perhaps, is to turn a profit, to set ourselves up, to be comfortable financially. That perhaps is what James has in mind when he says we're susceptible to making plans without factoring in God's will. The actions of these merchants should remind us of Jesus's famous parable of the rich fool in Luke chapter 12. Uh, In his field, Uh, was producing more grain than he had barns to store it all. So he says in verse 18, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and all my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up for many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. Does that sound familiar? I will do this and that and the other thing. And yet there is another conjunction that interrupts the whole process. At the beginning of verse 20, Jesus says, but, but God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you and the things you have prepared, whose will they be? In other words, God took him into eternity and he lost it all. 
So, Jesus says, is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. It's a profound truth that our and, and, and can be interrupted and dismantled by a single but God. And that's very similar to what James says here in verse 14. After this string of plans about today or tomorrow connected with and, 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 our ESV text says, yet you do not know what tomorrow will bring. But the contrast is actually more emphatic in the original text. In the original Greek text, James draws a direct connection between the one who is saying all the things he will do tomorrow and the one who does not know what tomorrow will bring. He literally says, the one saying is he who does not know. The word know translates a less common word in the New Testament for the acquisition of knowledge. It's actually where we get our word epistemology from, which is the study of how we know things. Can we just take a second to appreciate what we do not know? We don't know the future. That's obvious. The future is invisible. We can't see it. it it's, it's really dark in front of us. But the past is inaccessible. We can't retrieve it. So we can never be certain about it. They say that hindsight is twenty twenty. That's not actually true. How many conflicting accounts are there of the same event by different people who observed it? And for the events that we did not observe, all we can do is interpret the evidence of the past. The future is invisible, but the past is inaccessible. What about the present? The present is inexplicable. We cannot accurately interpret it. How do we really explain the human condition? How do we make sense of what's going on in the world right now? How are we to interpret events that are taking place politically? We see what's happening. How do we explain what's really going on? So if we want to know the truth, there's only one solution to an invisible future and an inaccessible past and an inexplicable presence, or inexplicable present. And that is an indisputable word. Only the word of God, the divine revelation, can give us certainty about what will happen in the future and explain for us and interpret the past and explain what we see in the present. So we need to trust God. We have to submit our plans to his sovereign will. He's the only one who knows. Why wouldn't we submit them to him? In fact, James literally says in verse 15, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, and we will live and do this or that. There's an and, an extra and in there that is not in your translation. What James is doing here is repeating the same succession of plans using the word and. But the difference is this and, and, and consciously assumes the sovereign will of God. We need to say, by God's grace, I will do this and that and the other if he wills. And if he does not, then I will yield to his sovereign design for my life. In this way, I am factoring in, I am reckoning the most significant truth when it comes to what is going to happen in my future, and that is that God's will will reign supreme, whether I want it to or not. 
but closely related to the first compelling reason we must faithfully and consciously say, if the Lord wills, which is our knowledge of the future is zero, is a second compelling reason. Namely, our life on this earth is fleeting. And James makes this observation palpable with his metaphor in the remainder, uh, remainder of verse 14. In fact, I think this must be one of the New Testament's most memorable word pictures. James says, what is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. The word mist is rare in the New Testament. It appears only one other time, and that's when Peter is quoting a Greek Old Testament text uh, in Acts 2. And there he uses the word, uh, this translation is vapor. It's, it's a word that could mean mist or vapor or smoke. Either way, the meaning is the same. Our lives are thin and brief. Blow out a match and watch the smoke rise. It looks a little thick at first, but then it starts thinning out and pretty soon it's gone. That's our life. That's our life expectancy. That's how much time we have here. That's how vulnerable we are. Watch the mist on the grass on a summer morning. As soon as the sun appears, it evaporates and it's gone. You see, we only assume that life will go on as we know it, especially when we're young and strong. We've got plans and we're going to do things. We've got goals. In fact, these are not necessarily worldly goals. Or personal goals. Many of you are saying to yourself this morning, we're going to do things for God. We don't care about money. Our plans are ministry plans. We're going to serve the Lord. Of course God is not going to let anything happen to us. Because he's obviously glad that he has someone like us who is serving him. Right? I mean, he's going to give us a pass on suffering and and ultimately an early, untimely death. Well, right away... Let's destroy the notion that God's pleasure with us is related to how much we plan to do for him. I don't care how much you serve God, whether you are very mature in your walk with the Lord, whether you're an infant in Christ struggling to learn to obey, whether you're beating yourself up sometimes because you're saying, I, I just, I'm trying to follow the Lord and I just, I keep falling down. No matter where you are spiritually, if you belong to God through salvation in Jesus Christ, If you are in Christ, God loves you as much as he loves his beloved son, Jesus. John 17, 23, Jesus prays to the Father that the world would know that the Father loves his children just as he loves the Son. That's staggering. That's remarkable. We can scarcely believe it. The fleeting nature of our lives, the fact that our times are in God's hands and that we could go to be with him today before the day is out or we could live to be a hundred has nothing to do with how much we are doing for God or how much he loves us. In fact, if I can share something personal again, after the Lord took my first wife home, for weeks after that, I would be driving around town in Greenville or in Anderson, where we had lived. We rented an apartment there right down the road from Oakwood Baptist Church where my first wife had taught in high school there. And I would be watching the people in the other lanes in the cars as they would pass me. I didn't mean to do this. I just did it automatically. I don't know why I was doing it. 
but I would be talking to the Lord. And I would be saying to him, why did you do this to us? Why did you take her? Look at all these people, Lord. Most of them don't even know you. They don't even care about you. If they're Christians, maybe they're not even following you like they should. We were going to serve you. We were going to to go to this little Bible college and get paid a very little amount of money to, to, to have the privilege of pouring our lives into students so that you could take them and use them in ministry. Why did you put a stop to that? Well, I still don't understand the answer to the question, why, to this day. But at least I know the answer. And the answer is, the wise and good and loving and sovereign will of God. That's the only answer. And you see, this helps us to understand something deeply important about the phrase, if the Lord wills. Anybody can say this phrase. Anybody can say if the Lord wills. It's a common saying in the South, Lord willing and the creek don't rise, okay? You've probably heard that before. Douglas Moo in his commentary on James points out, that to recognize the fact that we don't know what the future will bring and that our lives are very brief and uncertain is not specifically Christian. The ancients believed in many gods, and one thing they knew is that the gods often messed with your lives. If you've ever read Homer's Odyssey, for example, where Odysseus is often at the mercy of the gods, you've seen the ancient Greek understanding of all this. Ancient literature is full of the expression Deo Valente, God willing, or Sede Valent, if, if, if the gods will. And eat, drink, and be merry, for tomorrow we die. You see, you don't have to believe in God to recognize the brevity of life and that uh, there is something that might severely interrupt your plans. But for a believer in Christ to say, if the Lord wills, is not merely to recognize the fact that God may interrupt my life plan. To say, if the Lord wills, is to submit my life to God's wise and good and loving and sovereign control. It is how we bow to God's will, trusting him to lead us and to guide us and to uphold us through the changes that he himself will orchestrate in our lives. In fact, I don't think James is laying down the law here. You must always utter the words, Lord willing, every single time you speak about the future. I I do try to do that consciously. And in fact, sometimes when I'm talking about what we're going to do as a family or maybe as a church, I, I say, well, we plan to do this. I don't always say Lord willing, but I say we plan to. And I do that on purpose because this is our plan. But we're always recognizing the Lord might have another plan. I mean, you can say Lord willing out of habit and never really consciously mean it. But what James is definitely saying is that any plan you make for the future ought to be made in submission to God's sovereign will. Because to consciously reckon God's sovereign will is not for the purpose of simply hedging your plans or making sure you don't end up with egg on your face because you said something was going to happen and it didn't happen. But rather for the purpose of seeking to know God's will for your life and to give yourself over to his plan for you. The Apostle Paul knew a lot about this. We get a little glimpse of what he went through as an apostle. Even as an apostle of Christ, he didn't always know what was going to happen. I think of in Acts 16 where he's going all across the the Asia Minor continent, and the Holy Spirit kept saying, no, don't go there, no, don't go there. And he finally was like, Lord, where am I supposed to go? And you see this all the way through his life. 
But you know what Paul's testimony is in Acts 20, 24? He says, I do not account my life of any value nor as precious to myself. If only I may finish my course and the ministry that I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. You see what he's saying here? knowing that he does not know the future and knowing that his life is fleeting, his response is not to hold on to his life as something precious, something he didn't want to let go of. To make all his plans without reckoning God's sovereign will. His desire was to give his life back to God for his service, for God's glory. And it's true for all of us, I think, but especially For younger believers, you you tend to want to hold on to your life. You're making plans, plans for graduation, plans for income, plans for a future family. You've got energy and talent, and you're attractive, and you may even have money. If not, you know how to get money. You know how to get resources. And you're thinking about what you're going to do in the world, and your plans may very easily include God because you're believers and you're here studying to serve him. In your mind, you're going to give him some of your life. You'll dedicate a few hours here or there to God. You're not giving yourself completely to him, but you're giving a lot of him, and he should be grateful for that. And James would tell you, you're living in an illusion if you think you're just going to move forward with no interruptions, as if we can just sort of parcel out some of our life and give God some of it and keep the rest for ourselves. The only way, the only way to walk with God is to give him your vulnerable, fleeting life completely to God for his glory and his service. What are we holding on to it for anyway? It's going to be gone in a moment. The Lord isn't asking you to do anything that he was not willing to do for himself, to do himself. Because Matthew says about Jesus, that he fell on his face and prayed, saying, Father, if it be possible, let this cup pass from me. Nevertheless, not as I will, but as you will. Jesus wants us to live this way also. And he went before us and went the ultimate way to the cross. And when he says, all who follow me must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me, We're following him to ultimate execution. That might not be what actually happens to us in God's will, but we're willing to do that if that's what God wills. And that's how we follow the Lord. Now, in light of all of this, our our zero knowledge of the future and the transient quality of our life on earth and our understanding of what it means to say, Lord, your will be done, there's a final compelling reason for us to say, or at least to consciously reckon all the time, if the Lord wills. And that is, our boast in our own plans is sinful. Sinful. That's what James says. To make plans without reckoning the factor of God's sovereign will is sinful. Because James writes, starting at verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogance. All such boasting is evil. He's used used boast, arrogance, 
boasting and evil. And then he finishes up, so whatever, whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. Wow. I mean, once again, James surprises us without how strongly he denounces our behavior. We've seen this before. This is the same James who earlier in the letter said, if we don't bridle our tongue, our religion is worthless. That if you say you have faith, you're no better off than the demons unless you do something about it. That your tongue is set on fire of hell. This is the James who earlier in chapter 4 calls us adulteresses and enemies of God for flirting with the world. And now he says, if we fail to say, if the Lord wills, we are arrogant, boastful, evil sinners. Is James just way over the top here? Is, is, is the secret that he's just a very dramatic person and that's why he keeps saying stuff like this in the letter? No, as we've observed before, James is, James is not trying to overstate the case. James is describing what our behavior looks like from the vantage point of a holy God who created us. We wonder if he's overstating the case when we don't take our sin as seriously as God takes our sin. And when we fail to see God in his glory, fail to see the distinction between ourselves and, and our creator as we are created beings and he has made us. James actually says in verse 16, as it is, you boast in your arrogances. The, the word is plural and James is probably saying you boast in your arrogant schemes. You boast in your arrogant plans. Why are our plans arrogant? They're arrogant if we make our plans without factoring in the sovereign will of God, without first seeking God's will, without submitting to his lordship, without always bearing in mind that God might have another plan, as if, as if we can actually think for a moment that our plans are not going to be interrupted by divine will. There's only one person in the whole universe who can do that, and that's the creator himself. So when we do it, we're playing God. And if by our plans we are arrogantly playing God, we know why James calls this boasting evil. To boast is to celebrate the glory of something. That's what it means. To celebrate the glory of something or someone. It's not to give glory, like we, we can't make God more glorious than he is, but to proclaim the glory that we recognize already exists. And ultimately, all glory must be given back to God and his work. That's why Ephesians 2 says our, our salvation is not by works so that no one might have reason to boast as if he had anything to do with saving himself. In Galatians 6.14, Paul says, Far be it from me to boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. And Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1, So that no human being might boast in the presence of God. As it is written, let the one who boasts, boast in the Lord. You see, when we play God, we pretend to be sovereign. By making plans we imagine will come to pass without reckoning other factors into the equation. The glory goes to us when we do this. We are literally robbing God of his glory. We are putting ourselves in the place of God. We become our own idol. 
We are claiming to be able to do something only God can do. We are claiming knowledge of the future. We are claiming to possess the sovereign power to see our plans through as we imagine them and that our plans are good and right. I hope we can see then why James is justified to call this evil. When we see this boasting for what it really is, we could even call it blasphemy. But lest we have any doubts, James ends with this summarizing statement, the kind we've come to expect in his letter, in verse 17. Whoever knows the right thing to do and fails to do it, for him it is sin. The parallelism in the Greek text is really striking here. It really is is great to diagram. It's right on theme, too. James literally says, the one knowing good to do and not doing it. It is sin to him. Isn't this exactly what James has been saying for the whole letter? This takes us back to chapter 1 where he says, don't be merely a hearer of the word, but a doer. Or chapter 2 when he says, in essence, don't merely say you have faith, act it out. And it reminds us of what he says back in verse 11 of this chapter, chapter 4, where he says, don't be a judger of the law or the word of God, but be a doer. And here in verse 17, he says, don't be a mere knower of God's will, but a doer. In other words, live up to your faith. Have you really been called to salvation through the cross work and resurrection of Jesus Christ? What does that mean for you as you're making plans? Are you today actively, consciously seeking God's will? Are you yielded in your heart and in your actions to what he has for you? Do you know that he has a will you haven't followed? Are you saying no to him in some area? Or are you making all these elaborate plans, but you've never really stopped to pray that much about whether God wants you to do this? In other words, drawing near to him and and searching out his will in his word that God may guide you. We need to make every decision with God's will in mind. And we should pray that God will help us to walk ever in the context of his sovereign will. That itself is part of God's will for us. And that's what it means to live up to our faith. Father, thank you for...